Welcome back to the Four Gardens podcast. I'm Jake Ifshin. The Four Gardens are an approach I'm developing to cultivate a life of balance, joy, and abundance by focusing on four key areas of life. On this show, I talk to people inspiring me in those four areas of health, nature, creativity, and service. To learn more about the Four Gardens, go to the website fourgardenspodcast.com and make sure to like and subscribe to hear new episodes and support this project. Sasha Bugler is my guest today. And we're going to talk about permaculture, flower farming, mental health, and more. I'm excited to get to know Sasha better. Let's jump right in. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Sasha. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me, Jake. Yeah, I'm excited. It's uh, I love that plant behind you. I can see you over there. And yeah, I believe it's an angel wing begonia. Blooms pink once a year. <laughs> right on. You are I, you're a new friend whose energy I've really enjoyed. I love your nature connection, your plant connection, and you have a little wildness to you that always keeps things <laughs> fresh and creativity. So it's really a blessing to have you on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you about me and also just get to know you a little better and support your projects because you're doing awesome things too. Thanks for that. Yeah, if you want to ask questions too, fire away, but I get to go first because it is okay. my show right now But <laughs> and I, and I want to know about you first. So I'm going to ask okay. you, I want to hear a little more about what you're passionate about in the world. Some of, like what's alive for you mm, in Sasha's life right okay. now? Okay, what's alive for me? What's alive for me is um, my my strongest desire in the world is to facilitate connection for people, to connection to self, connection to others, and connection to the environment, to God, to nature, to the earth, whatever label you put on this space that we occupy as humans on this planet. Um, I think disconnection is the root of pretty much all of the issues that are going on, um, and I want to help foster more connection. Um, I do that right now through, uh, I currently manage a cut flower farm in Waterford, Virginia. It's called Sweet Piedmont. Um, We have about a 10 acre property, but we're only growing on a little over three three quarters of an acre. Um, Yeah, I've been managing this flower farm since March. Um, I'm new to flowers though. I've been doing veggies for the last six years since 2016. So five years, I guess, um, seasonally. Um, but this year I took the jump into flowers. Um, for me being a part of the agriculture world is that's, that's sort of my lens on how I go about fostering connection because one of Uh, the big things that I care about is knowing where the things that I'm using and consuming is coming from. And so for me in, in, in producing goods from land, um, I am helping to bring people closer to where their food and their flowers and, you know, their materials are coming from um, because I'm sure as you well know, like stuff and food travels so, so far, so far, right? The average plate of food travels, what, 1700 miles or something like it's absurd. Um, And, you know, the reality is we can produce a very large percentage of of the food that we consume in our local region. Um, And I want to be a part of that. Um, and for flowers, I've, you know, I've been curious about them for a number of years. I've been around some growing of flowers before, but this is my first year actually doing it as like a business. Um, and it's been really, really cool because I'm getting to carry over all of the farming skills that I'm used to doing veggies. Um, but I'm learning about an entirely new cohort of plants and like what they like and what they don't like and what they need and, you know, who's finicky and who's, you know, grows like a weed. And, um, so that's been really cool. Um, I'm super grateful to have landed in the spot that I have. My boss is really amazing and supportive. Um, this is sort of her side gig. So she has a full-time job. And so I am, running pretty much all farm operations all the time um, now. And for me, it's been a really good opportunity to step up into a leadership role 
Um, and you know, the pay raise doesn't hurt. It's, um, it's very difficult, especially for young farmers to support themselves monetarily. Um, it, you know, seasonal work is really hard. You know, what to do in the off season is really hard. Um, also, you know, the vast majority of farm workers are not even paid minimum wage. You know, that's one of the exceptions to the minimum wage laws. Um, you know, and we have all the issues of migrant workers. Like there's a whole. There's so much to talk about when there's it comes so to agriculture. There's so much to talk about there. I, I, um, my personal curiosity right now, I'm feeling, is towards this flower farming gig. That all right, because cool. You and so I let's both talk have about a, the flower farm. I want to start there because you and I have this shared background of veggie gardening. Like we could talk a yeah. lot of shop around how to grow vegetables, how to grow yeah. local food. And mm-hmm. I've just been kind of, flower farm has been coming into my awareness, but I don't know a lot of full-time flower farmers, much less like managing flower farms like you're doing now. So I'd love mm-hmm. to hear a little more about some lessons that have come in, anything that surprised you getting into mm. that field or. Oh, yeah. so many things, so many things. Um, well, so the thing with flowers is that, you know, there, there's definitely part of me that feels slightly strange about putting all of this time and energy and resources into something that lasts like a week and looks pretty, you know? And then the, the tandem conversation to that is that it's beauty, it's energy, it's life. It's, it brings us so much joy, right? The thing that I say about what I do now is I bring joy to people's lives, right? Like that's what I do. It's so wonderful. Um, and the people that buy our flowers, they love them. It's so, and they come back and they're, ugh. so that's beautiful. Um, the issue with flowers in this country is that the vast, vast majority of them are imported from Colombia, from Holland, they're, they're coming on boats across the ocean to get to our supermarkets. It's absolutely ridiculous. That's shocking. Also, the big difference between local flowers and supermarket flowers or even florist flowers are that the stuff you get in the grocery store is all just like anything you get in the grocery store, any produce in the grocery store, it's all been bred so that you can ship it. Right. You know, the tomatoes in the grocery store, they're designed so that they can be picked green when they're still firm and they ripen in the box on the train across the country to your house. You know, Um, so nothing and pretty much nothing in the grocery store is, you know, is going to be an heirloom product is going to have be, you know, shelf stable for a while. It's it's all, you know, everything in the grocery store is bred for longevity, bred for you know, how it looks bred for uniformity, right? Tomatoes have been bred to be the exact right size to go into this machine that makes ketchup. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous what we've done to, to our, you know, food crops. Like we've turned them into monsters. What are some of the impacts though? Get into flowers. What? Yeah. But what are some of the impacts then of doing it locally for flowers? um, When I think about pollinators or other impacts that I'd love to hear some of that positive benefit that doing it the way you're doing it will create as opposed yeah. to shipping from so, Holland. So we farm, well, the other thing about, you know, imported flowers is it's, it's the industrial agriculture machine. Yeah. So they're pumping them full of chemicals. They're fertilizing them with petrochemicals. It's, it's terrible. It's so, so terrible. They're not taking care of the land they're, you know, producing these things on. They're just pumping it full of chemicals and mining it essentially. Um, we don't do that. Um, we really, really care about our soil. We really, really care about the ecological diversity that we're trying to foster on our farm. Like the insect community, insect and, you know, uh, fungal and bacterial communities that we're fostering on the farm. Those are our worker bees, right? Those are our farm animals. Like that's what we're trying to foster. Um, and you know, we're, we're not certified organic. Honestly, I think organic is a total cop-out. That's a long story, right? But it takes all this money and there's no point in doing it unless you're selling wholesale because, you know, it's thousands of dollars and a bunch of paperwork. And so if you we're know not your, organic. If you know your farmer too, you know your source of your food and, you're, and right, you can go and visit, right, that's as good exactly. as organic as trust in your farm. Exactly. And, you know, knowing your local farmer can often be better than organic. Better. There are a lot of organic practices that are total BS, right? Like organic farmers are not allowed to use biodegradable plastic mulch. So there exists a biodegradable plastic mulch that, you know, farmers can, at the end of the season, once their crops are done, they can just till it into the soil and it'll break down. Awesome. Great. It's made from corn or soybean oil or something, you know, 
What does meet organic standards is plastic mulch, which leaches who knows what into the soil, which breaks down and creates the, you know, adds to the microplastic issues. And then at the end of the season needs to be pulled up and thrown in a landfill somewhere. But for whatever reason, the biodegradable stuff doesn't meet organic standards. So a farmer who is using biodegradable mulch could not get certified organic because of that. So frustrating. So every organic farmer, every or I guarantee you, every organic veggie farmer out there is laying plastic mulch every season to grow their veggies in. Thanks for doing it's, it a different way, doing it your yeah, way in the farm. It's really silly. Yeah. So we, um, a word that was handed to me recently by an agricultural extension agent in the Leesburg office. She came out and looked at our farm. She was talking about biorational farming. So like doing things for the biology on your farm that makes sense. <laughs> right. Um, and that makes sense to me because, you know, like you have to think critically about how you want to manage your system. Right. And every system is totally, totally different. Right. Like the number one answer to any question in permaculture is it depends. Right. And so that's that's sort of what it is in any sort of land based operation, any land-based project is totally, completely context dependent. So a system that might work for me might not work at all for someone with a different environment, with a different context. Um, so that's number one, the most important thing to think about when you're thinking about any sort of systems design. Um, but we are, you know, we don't use any synthetic fertilizers or pesticides. We don't spray any pesticides at all, organic or not. Um, we, you know, or at least we didn't this year, we may spot treat if we have pest pressure issues in the future, you know, with organic certified stuff, but we didn't have a problem this year. You know, we have a really incredibly ecologically diverse system. We have predator insects, we have praying mantises, we have ladybugs, you know, they're keeping our pest pressure down. It's awesome. Um, but we, we, we use only sustainable practices. We also are a no-till farm and no-till farming is something that's new to me, actually. Um, granted, no-till farming is kind of a misnomer in some ways because, um, actually most corn and soybean, um, farming is actually no-till. They're not running tillers through the fields anymore. They don't do that anymore. We figured it out a long time ago that if you till up a whole field that you're going to plant with corn, all that washes into the creek. Like, you know, massive erosion problems, right? That's, that's, that's in the past. What they do now is spray herbicide to kill everything and then plant into that. You know, that's why we have GMO Roundup resistant corn and soybeans, right? They just spray everything. And that's how they turn over the field instead of having to actually agitate the soil. So most conventional corn and soybean farming is no till, but you know, it comes with a huge caveat of the fact that they're just like loading everything with pesticides. Our kind of no till, you know, any sort of disturbing the soil is tillage, right? You in farming, you're going to disturb the soil, but no-till in sort of small-scale agriculture means disturbing the soil the least amount possible, right? Because your soil has layers in it, right? And different layers have different ecologies. And also, you know, when you allow your fungal system to develop, that has a whole network. Anytime you're stirring the soil, you're completely destroying the ecology that's built up in that soil over time. You're completely destroying the fungal network. You're shredding bacterial colonies you know, um, and then also what you're doing is exposing all of this nutrients and all these bacteria to air. And so that it basically, when you till the soil, you burn off all of the nutrients in the top layer of soil immediately because it's exposed, which it not normally is. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of issues with, with turning over the soil. And like, sometimes that's what you have to do, breaking new ground. Sometimes you have to do that. However, there are a lot, a lot of tips and techniques to do agriculture without flipping the soil. Um, and so that's what we do. We don't use a tiller. Um, things that we do to manage ourselves, you know, manage weeds. We, um, one thing that a lot of no-till farmers do is use silage tarps. It's um, what is used to cover like 
hay bales or straw at the end of the season, you ever see a big long tunnel, that's, that's that tarp. It's white on one side and black on the other. So you put the black side down so it doesn't absorb heat. The white side keeps the heat out, but the black side keeps the light out. So when you cover the ground with a tarp, it just, it's mulch. It acts as a layer to, you know, it doesn't let water in. It doesn't let light in. It allows, you know, it, it basically creates the environment like there was, you know, a layer of sod or a layer of plants on top, but without having the living material. And what that allows to happen um, is, is the breakdown of residues. So, um, at the end of a season or at the end of a crop cycle, there's whatever's left in the field. It's called the residue. So like if you're cutting broccoli, for example, you just take the flower off the top. There's this whole plant. So a thing that a lot of farmers do to turn over a, a bed is they mow the residue and they shred it up into little pieces and then they cover it with a tarp. And the tarp creates the environment where the worms and the microbes can get in there and eat and process and break down all of the residue that was in the field. So you're not losing those nutrients, they're staying in the soil, they're getting reincorporated. And then the, the length of time you leave the tarp on ranges hugely. Um, in the summer, it could be a couple weeks. In the winter, it could be a couple months. So temperature and sunlight are factors. Um, also it depends on how bulky the stuff you're trying to break down is. Um, you can also tarp bare ground and what that does, it, um, it just creates a layer where weeds come, won't come up. It also, if seeds germinate under the tarp, they then die. So what you're doing, what some people will do is water a place and then let the seeds sprout, the top layer of seeds sprout and then cover it with a tarp. Um, the term is occultation to cover. Um, and so tarping is, is a really big practice in the no-till world. Um, another thing that we do, so, uh, there is an organization in Virginia that I just hooked up with called, uh, for the soil and they are all about soil health and there's, I, need to look it up, but there's, you know, four things to do to take care of your soil. One of them is always keep it covered either with living stuff or mulch or, you know, so the best thing to do for soil is have it living stuff in it. The next best thing is a biodegradable mulch. The third best thing is like a plastic mulch or a tarp or something, but you want to want to always keep your soil covered because what soil wants to do is produce stuff, right? If it's covered, then you're gr either growing what you want or preventing what you don't want to grow from growing. Um, so, so keep it covered. And my friend Johnny um, at at the Harvest Table what? Farm. My, I was going to say my friend Johnny at the Harvest Table Farm does no-till no farming as well. And he mm. he also says that he's farming soil. You know, that's kind of his right. line is the, the vegetables right. and everything, all the other crops that's he's growing. That's just the result. That's the result. But really he's there, he's focused on that soil. And so I, I think that shows the kind of importance that that has to farmers like you and him. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the soil, it's our lifeblood. It's where we come from. It's where our bones go back to when we die, right? Um, every single mineral in your body that was like formed in a sun, you know, however many millions of years ago, um, comes, comes to you through the soil, comes to you through the food you put in your mouth. And that food comes from the soil, regardless of what food it is. It comes from the soil. It comes from the earth. So there's that direct connection to the earth. Um, yeah. So other things about no-till. So another thing that we do, so with the mulching, um, when we, uh, prep a bed for planting, um, we don't use like wood mulch or hay or anything, but what we do is spread about an inch of compost. And so the compost that we have, it's, it's sterile. And by that, I mean, it doesn't have any. Sasha, I lost you there for a second. I'd like to hear a little more if there's more you want to share on no-till farming. Right. Yeah. So the last thing I want to say is about my two favorite tools for no-till farming. Um, so number one is a broad fork. So a broad fork is about a three foot wide fork that has tines every, I don't know, four to six inches. You can buy them at different lengths or spacing or whatever, but it has two handles 
and it's designed for aerating soil. So when we're doing no-till, we're not stirring the soil, but if you have soil that's been compacted over time, um, this is a great way to break that up. Also, if you have a hard pan, um, where like an implement has been hitting the same place over and over, there is a layer that can build up. Uh, broad fork is a great way to pierce that and break through that barrier because sometimes it prevents water and nutrients and roots from penetrating it. Um, so the broad fork is something we do um, early when we're prepping a bed before we plant it out, we'll run the broad fork across a bed to pull holes in the soil, basically to let air in, to let water in and to create some space for, you know, things to move around a little bit. Yeah. The way I've taught um, so that in the past has been the soil needs all the same things we do. This is what we teach the children of it needs food, uh, it needs water, it needs air. And so broad fork yeah. is an important and a good workout too. Yeah. Oh my God. It'll kick your butt. I, yeah, that's a great workout. Do a couple beds of broad forking and you're done for the day. Oh yeah. <laughs> I did a whole field, the place I was at last year, a whole like half an acre. It was crazy. Anyways. Um, but yeah, so the other tool is you have to have a really good hoe because the best way to stay on top of weeds is to get them when they're teeny, teeny, tiny and delicate. And if you whack them once, then they're done. It's called white root stage. When the plant, when the seeds first put out that first root, it's very delicate, but it's, you know, going down. If you either cut it off or dig it out of the soil, that kills the plant immediately. So their Never Sink Farm is a no-till farm. I don't know where it is, but they've come up with a whole line of tools. And one of the things they have is a hoe that has a quick release on the end. So they have, it's a, it's a stick and then a quick release at the end. And they have like a dozen different attachments that you can put on the head. There's wire hose. There's some hoes that have a break in the middle so that you can just go straight over a plant and the hoe will go around the plant. There's like just a straight bar. So hoeing, it sounds so silly, um, but it's, it's one of my happy places. I just put some tunes on and go to get the walkways. Cause if you do it once a week, you're done, right? If you do, That's if right. you get the whole farm once a week, you don't have to do any hand pulling. You don't have to dig anything up. Nothing ever gets big enough. And also nothing ever goes to seed. So one of the things about tillage is that when you turn the soil over, you're bringing up weed seeds, right? So one of the reasons we're, you know, not tilling is because we want to lower our weed pressure. You know, the soil holds at least seven years of seeds in it, right? So if you just, you know, watered it, hoed it, watered it and hoed it, you know, you'd have to do that for years and years before the soil will have tired itself out of the seeds that have been deposited in it over time. Um, so the way to manage that is you have to get them when they're small and you have to prevent them from going to seed. So, so that's why the hoe is the best. <laughs> this is really important information uh, Sasha has shared. And if people are interested in learning more about this, I can post some resources too around no-till farming. And I know Sasha, you'd probably be open to talking to people too, right? Or other oh, farmers. for sure. Um, because they're, I, I feel like you really did cover a lot of the really important tools, techniques, and benefits of no-till farming too. So yes, I so support this farming technique in the world and have also helped on no-till farms, not worked there like you. Um, so keep mm. up the good work with that. Yeah, and I wanna also ask you um, and talk to you about our shared background in permaculture. And just for people who have never heard the word permaculture, permaculture, I will share my definition definition of it, which is a regenerative system of design that works with nature instead of against nature to create lasting human settlement and food production. So that's my little textbook definition you, of you it. Know, do you know Bill Mollison's definition? Yeah, sure, Bill's. Do you have that in your head? Bill Mollison, one of the co-creators of, of permaculture, calls it an integrated design science. I like how how short that one is. That's it. Just right. Integrated design integrated science. Integrated design science. Yeah. So Bill Mollison and what's the other guy's name? David Holmgren, David Holmgren who was yeah. one of his students at some university in Australia, came up with this way of looking at things, if you will. Um, when was this? In the 80s? 70s? Six, around this, a lot of the work was happening in the 70s. And I'll also say they, they are the 
authors of permaculture one and the original textbooks, but a lot mm-hmm. of this does draw on indigenous wisdom and the way indigenous right. people. Right, I was definitely going to say that too. Yeah, yeah. I, I beat you to the punch there, but that's important that it is uh, just a different way of seeing the world that is, I, I feel like, pushing back and a new way of seeing that's not extractive and not going to just destroy cyclical. the planet. Take yeah, it's a cyclical way of seeing. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, so they looked at the agriculture system, I guess, the way I kind of do, and went, why are we doing this? This is silly. And 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 that, you know, what we do now, it's a linear system. Well, so industrial agriculture, I'm going to go on a rant for a hot sec. Industrial agriculture happened because at the end of World War II, we had all these munitions that were unused. We had all these nitrates and stuff, and they were like, what do we do with this? Let's figure out a way to use this. So they started spreading it on the fields and that's where like nitrogen fertilizer came from. It was just like spent war munitions. It's so silly, you know? And so that's where that came from. And then we started doing that. And and now what we do is we spray chemicals, plant seeds, spray chemicals again, you know, it, it's, and, and then harvest and then pull all of that and don't give back to the soil at all. It's, it's totally extractive. It's totally linear also, you know, and then our, our waste system, we don't have a cyclical waste system. We just throw it in the ground right now. There is no way we're pretending that there is. It's absurd. And so permaculture attempts to close those linear systems, you know, these, these, destructive linear systems that you know frankly capitalism has has generated in our in our in the way we interact with the world um and with the earth and and it's it's so destructive you know we're doing habitat loss climate change all this stuff you know is happening as a result of the way that humans have interacted with earth and much much of it Um, has been focused on around permaculture is around growing food but there's also a lot of branches of it too that focus on the structures design. we live in, the design, the water, had all the elements. And so it, it ends up being for me a deeper holistic system, right? You use totally. the word integrated, that it integrates food and habitat and all the other, and, and even uh, other energies that we're working with in our lives should be designed Absolutely. into the system. Yeah, it's it's holistic. It's that's why permaculture is so good because it looks at everything. That's why the answer is always it depends because you have to take everything into account. You have to take the context into account. And ultimately, a goal um, of a good permaculture design, Bill Mollison says, is to be doing less work in the end because the system will care for itself. Now, that being said, most of the permaculture heavyweights I know, including you, are working pretty hard still. There, there's a lot of work to be done out there. <laughs> But the goal well, is to make systems aren't there yet. <laughs> but it also, is that these systems are supposed to take a lot of energy up front. It's an 80-20 right. principle of we put the 80% in and then maintaining them will be easier because you have healthy soil as a good example. Exactly. You have to constantly exactly. add chemicals until all of that. That's a lot of uh, maintenance work and, right. and not, not regenerating your energy or the soil. Right. Exactly. Um, so I have curiosity about what your history with permaculture is. Like, where did you, how did you find it and get into it? And what have you learned? Sure. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I started doing well, urban agriculture was my pathway in was gar- growing sc- school gardens and gardening programs with kids, leading to me doing some work with Everybody Grows, a nonprofit. We were doing backyard gardens and raised bed gardens in places Aww. and for people that wanted them but couldn't have them due to age, income, or mobility, needed some extra help. Aww. So a lot of fire stations, senior homes, schools, uh, and that got me into it. But I wanted more. I was curious. I It sparked my interest in how to grow um, different ways and just in the box. You know, the box is great, the the raised bed box, but I started wanting to build other types of gardens and think about the other inputs and elements, how it affected the environment. So I went to Israel to study permaculture at Kibbutz Lotan Center for Creative Ecology. That's where I met a lot of my most frequent collaborators, some who you know, like Johnny is, I don't know if you met Johnny, but Ariel, uh, you know, I think I met him there. And, ah. and go back, listeners can go back to episode number one is Ariel Rubens, who I met at Kibbutz Lotan, which is one of my favorite places for sure. Uh, a magical community built of, they're famous for their earth structures. They build domes. Mm, they, build, cool. so they build these incredible domes. I recommend people checking them out online and they have wonderful gardens and other structures. And a big part of their business is doing PDCs, which is a program, a 72-hour certificate program in permaculture that they stretch out to a month of hands-on work there, uh, building and growing. And so that was really my 
immersion into the world of permaculture. And since then, I've done a lot of other study. I've got another PDC. I've yet to teach a PDC, but it's been where, a part where'd of you get your other one at the Reed Center in Maryland. Oh, so from I, Ben. I, yeah, with Ben Fritton two year, a year and a half ago, I did another one. And I want to do one in this climate, um, in, in like the Northeast mid Atlantic climate instead of the desert totally. where I was before. Right. Which is quite totally different. different ecology. Very different experience doing it in a different ecology with a different instructor. Um, but yes, recommend both programs and love permaculture and have gotten to practice in a lot of places now and with different communities. So that's kind of my nutshell permaculture story. And cool. Yeah. Awesome. Interested Thanks in hearing, for sharing. hearing yours now, if you're open to sharing Ooh. that story. Okay. So my entrance into farming, take one step back. Um, I, after college, I, I have a degree in civil engineering. So that's interesting. And people think I'm smart. So that's cool. But basically what I say is that I learned how to get really good at problem solving. Um, I'm very good at math and science and I have a really good sense of 3D space visualization. So all of these things are helpful for design work. Um, but I decided I did not want to go that route after college. And I was kind of floating around DC. I walked dogs for a couple of years, just played Frisbee and walked dogs. It was a little silly. Um, and I, but I was like lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my friend sent me this opportunity and was like, hey, do you want to go spend a summer on a farm in New England? And I was like, okay, what's this? Um, and it turns out, so Heifer International, the nonprofit organization that does sustainable agricultural development around the world, they fund agriculture projects around the world for, you know, people who don't have resources. They gift seeds, animals, and education to people who want to learn and grow more, you know, they say, give someone a cow, then they'll have milk for whatever, right? That's Heifer's whole mission. Um, and they have, you know, education is a big focus of theirs. And so they had two educational campuses on, you know, on farms. So there's one in Arkansas that is still in existence, but the one I was on it was in the middle of Massachusetts in Rutland, um, it's called Heifer Farm, um, and we ran educational programming for people about sustainable agriculture and agricultural development and nonprofit work. Um, and so I ended up spending a little over a year on this educational farm in the middle of Massachusetts, and I had my hands in the soil and I was working in the kitchen. So my position there I was a farmer chef educator. So I was growing food. I was processing it, preserving it, and then cooking meals with it for children who came through on overnight programs. And then I was teaching kids about where their food was coming from it was amazing. Like that's sort of the dream eventually, right. Is to, is to be able to educate people about where their materials, where their medicine and where their food are coming from. Um, that's, that's the big dream. I have lots of big dreams, but that's like, you know, that's, that's a big piece of it. Um, and so while I was there, some of the people that I was working with, which was also an incredible living, working experience. I met all these other amazing young people who all care about agriculture and about helping people and about, you know, caring for the earth. Um, and one of them pointed me towards permaculture, which I'd like heard of briefly before, but I didn't really know about it. So I started watching these, like someone, there's somewhere on the internet, some professor uploaded videos of a PDC or something. So I started watching them I'm like, what's this about? And, and I started learning and, and, and it totally got my left brain going. Cause you know, I have this degree in civil engineering. I, I love thinking about systems and efficiency and like how to make things easier eventually. Um, and so I just took this deep dive and was like, Holy wow, this is amazing. And I started David Holm. So Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, they're the originators. Bill Mollison was like the engineer design type and Holmgren is more of a philosopher in my opinion. Um, so like Bill Mollison wrote the textbook and Holmgren wrote the philosophy is sort of how I think about the two of them. And so I picked up Holmgren's philosophy and his ideas about how we can relate to each other in our environment and just like make these loops, close the loops, stop wasting so much energy and resources. Um, really turned me on. So at the end of 2017, after I left the place, the farm in Massachusetts, I went to Lost Valley Education and Events Center in Dexter, Oregon. It's outside of Eugene, like 20 minutes. 
Um, they have a 70 something acre property that like used to be a like Christian retreat place. But so it had all these cabins and had like a main lodge, but they have land. And so there's a community there, Lost Valley, that has between 45 and 60 residents um, more when there's students there. Um, and it's an intentional community. They all govern themselves and it's, they, I learned, so I, I went there to do a holistic sustainability semester, which is a three month program living and learning. Um, we had classes three days a week. Um, and one fifth of the program was a permaculture design course. So every Wednesday we did a permaculture class and it was really, really, I highly, highly recommend if anyone is looking to do a permaculture design course, do one for a longer period of time, right? The short ones, you're not going to get. So the most important thing, the number one thing, the first thing you're supposed to do in permaculture is observe. And until you have been able to look at the same place for a whole cycle, a whole year, you're not going to have an idea of what its context is. It takes at least one full season to understand how a place works, what kind of rain it gets, what kind of sun it gets, how that changes over the course of the year. Um, so my program was three months long. It was really cool. I got to see the tail end of summer, which out there is very dry. And then the rainy season comes and like everything blossomed to life in the fall. I was like, this is so weird. There's things like sprouting in October. Weird. Um, and because it's a different ecology than here, I was like so unused to it. But it was really cool to see the transition of the seasons there and to be in observation mode and thinking about systems while witnessing, you know, the transition of the seasons. Um but the other part of the holistic sustainability semester, the other two days of class a week, were focused on other elements of sustainability. So personal sustainability. We did a lot of, we learned about Tai Chi and yoga and meditation. Um, and then there's the social elements, like how do we interact interpersonally? How can we create an environment where communication is, we learned about effective communication. We also did um different kinds of group processing modalities. So there's a thing called Zeg Forum that originated in um, an eco village in Germany um, that now new culture practices, if you know any of those people, I've experienced it with them, um, but it's a group processing modality where it's a circle where one person gets up in the middle and expresses what is real, live and authentic for them. And there are facilitators that sort of guide you through your process but it's all about being seen where you are and being witnessed by your community. Um, and then often there will be opportunity after a share for reflections from your community so that you actually get like a reflection back to be like, oh yes, I did see you and what I got from it was. Um, it can be a really cathartic, powerful experience and, and way to move through emotion or, or thought or you know what is alive. Um, so there's that. And then we had economics classes that were talking about how do we manage resources on a community level? So we had this guy who is um, in charge of, it's called the Progressive Utilization Theory, the Prout Institute. And their whole thing is about, have you heard of this? I've heard of Prout, yeah. Yeah, so Ravi is the guy who like created this and he was one of my teachers. Um, he... It runs a little intentional community in Eugene and he runs the Prout Institute. And what they're trying to do is create regional, you know, closed loop cycles, right? To sort of break down some of these global, you know, supply chains that have been, you know, going all over the world. Like, why don't we grow things within 200 miles of where they're being consumed, you know? Um, cause, cause, and, and, and a thing that they talk about a lot is bioregions. So like the way that our country and our globe is divided up doesn't make any sense because it's sort of arbitrary political lines. And so bioregional philosophy is, hey, let's divide land up into, you know, contiguous pieces that have the same ecology and needs. And, you know, like, let's create little pieces that can sustain themselves that have similar, you know, environment. Um, and let's divide land up in a way that like actually makes sense using geography, using mountains and rivers as dividers instead of like this line here, you know? Um, 
So anyways, like the, the local economy is what we learned a lot about. And like, how do we do that? How do we create systems that are closer to home that support us? Um, and then there was a worldview element that was all about like, it was a lot about eco villages around the world. So we got a lot of education about how people are doing intentional community around the world. There's so many way, different ways of doing it. There's so many different ways of governing different sizes. So um, intentional community is something that's fascinating to me. And I hope to one day live in one because um, uh, that sounds like the best way for me to get my needs met is to live in community and be in community. And, and I want to create things with other people. And like, I'm a unique individual, but there's a lot of things that I can't do. So I want to have people around me that can complement my skills, you know, that have their own passions and interests that are going to be able to provide something that I can't do um, to the community. You know, what I care about is growing food and medicine, you know, and beauty. Um, and so that's what I want to sink my energy into, but there's so many other elements to, that go into maintaining a community, um, that, that, you know, we all have to work together. We do. Absolutely. And I think that what I appreciate about your, this educational background you had, uh, the, uh, what was the name of the center you lost the, valley that's right lost valley. education center I lost in lost well. valley I that's wanna, what we were i want to check yeah i want to get lost there for a minute it's, it sounds yeah, pretty rad oh my god definitely go um, visit they host they host monthly ecstatic dance campouts there and they have dances in the meadow it's incredible that was the first time i found ecstatic dance was it there amazing and i think yeah. too I, I just like the holistic approach of that of looking beyond just the, the the traditional elements of permaculture, the physical elements in the world, but also to think about like the social and economic dimensions of the practice. And I think too, with this four gardens project that I'm developing, I'm trying to make some of that thinking more accessible to people and to like just simplifying the metaphor of using gardening as a metaphor, because it is such a powerful metaphor to define what we're, uh, how we're caring for ourselves just like gardens have so much to teach us. And so thinking from that perspective too, um, one thing you mentioned to me you wanted to get into today would be sharing a little bit about mental health too and how you've cared for yourself and your own healing journey. And I'd love to open that up to you to share a little around that. And if we can maybe circle it back to some of the gardening language and the permaculture growing, language we share. Growing the garden, how, what you water grows, what you water and yeah. fertilize is what grows. How are you and doing you that for yourself? you have the power to pull wheat. You have... The power to pull weeds. Yes. Um, yeah. So um, my mental health journey. So I have a bipolar one diagnosis. Um, I was diagnosed in 2015 after I had a manic episode in which I didn't sleep for a week. It's very interesting. Um, that's not a fun place to be. Um, prior to that, I had experienced bouts of depression during college. Um, I also had a series of traumatic brain injuries, concussions, um, playing ultimate, um, that really, really messed with my ability to regulate my emotions. I was crying for no reason or ecstatic or angry. It just like never made any sense because I just bruised that part of my brain. Um, so yeah, so, but pretty much since 2015 i've been on a journey of kind of bouncing between extremes highs and lows um so for those of you who don't know bipolar is previously known as manic depressive manic depression um and it is characterized by uh extreme swings in mood and energy um and mania can both both sides of the coin can be very very dangerous um when you're manic you can be really reckless and impulsive and you know dangerous frankly you know those are that's those are some of the risks of being on the high side but it's also like really addictive because it feels really good and you feel like you can do anything um you know and then people tend to be a bit more familiar with depression and with being low and being isolated and 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 stagnant and closed and and um, you know, and, and that's just the other side of that. It's, it's not moving. It's not, you know, it's not doing it's, it's, um, for me, my depression often is, it's just avoidance and numbing. It's, it's trying to distract myself from, from where I am. Um, 
but yeah, it's been a heck of a journey. And every time my energy cycle goes around again, I learn so, so, so much. Um, so at this point in my life, I have been what could theoretically be characterized as manic since the first weekend of August. Um, I went to a magical summer camp wedding of my two beautiful friends, and it was really, really activating. Um, and since then, I've been, I've had a lot of energy. I've had a lot of ideas. I've had, I've been running around and doing a lot of stuff and, and trying to get some rest. But the thing that I'm doing a lot better this go around that I, I haven't done so well in the past is, is taking care of myself, is nourishing myself, is making sure I'm eating, making sure I'm sleeping, making sure I'm always taking my meds, you know, making sure I have time for mindfulness. Um, and, and, you know, when when managing mental illness like the number one skill that I have in your back pocket is is self-awareness is the ability to look at yourself and observe your behavior and be able to and do it without judgment or you know do it do it from a place of oh i'm noticing that this is happening right now instead of you know instead of oh this is a bad thing that's happening right now if you place a value judgment on it then there's resistance then there's you know all sorts of other stuff um and so i've i've been doing a lot of work to cultivate the the skill of self-awareness to to be able to check in with myself and know where I am and know where my energy is at because that's that's what it is. It's like a it's like a dysfunction in energy management is is my experience of bipolar. It's just like I don't have a lot of control over how much energy I have. And sometimes it's a lot and sometimes it's not a lot. Um and honestly in my personal opinion, bipolar people, my, my best guess is that bipolar people have difficulty grounding. Um, that is my experience. I have a lot of, lot of difficulty grounding. I have had an unstable home life my whole life. There's like displacement trauma in my family history. And then I also have like a lot of physical trauma in, in my legs and in my ankles and my hips. Um, and, and I think all of those things combined, you know, like not having a secure home energetically and also like physically being unstable in the lower half of me prevents me from being able to move energy down um, and, and out of my body. And so I have a hypothesis about bipolar disorder is that it's just an inability to ground and, and it's an overactivity in different energetic parts of the body. And in my experience, every single uh, symptom of bipolar disorder or of mania, for example, is is an overactivity in an energy center. So like um, doing things that are really reckless and, you know, irresponsible. That's, that's, that's like lacking security, you know, promiscuity is, is, is a symptom that's in the, in the manual, right? Being more sexually active, that's an overabundance in your sacral chakra, you know, uh, delusions of grandeur and overinflated sense of self. That's all right in your solar plexus, right? Wanting to connect with everyone and everything, having a wide open heart that's here, right? Being really loud that's here, you know, seeing things and communicating with things that human other people can't you know and there's and 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 like there's lots of spiritual stuff that can happen in a in a in a really high energy mode but but if there's overactivity in any of those centers and it's not able to ground it can get out of balance and out of control and become problematic um so a lot of the work that i'm doing is developing grounding practices and techniques and 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 finding ways that I can sort of burn off XX energy that I might have, right? Because now I'm in this high energy state and I want to sleep through the night. I have to use my energy. I have to like earn it a little bit. So I have to make sure I'm exercising. And like fortunately I do a manual labor job. So I get to do a lot of that in my work. Um, but exercise is crucial. Eating well is crucial. Um, sleep is a huge one. And I'm a pretty funny sleeper. Um, if you've ever been to a party with me, you'll know this because I'm the person that like passes out in the middle of the party at 10 p.m. Because I wake up at four or five in the morning every morning without fail. My my average wake up time is 4:30, so it means I have to go to bed by like eight at the latest, you know, or eight eight, eight or nine. Um, well, I did go it's also to your time. I did go to your birthday celebration recently. Oh yeah, well I was up to pretty, like 1:30 that night, yeah. but I was pretty zonked. Okay. Yeah. You were, you, you threw a really beautiful gathering, uh, to celebrate. Oh yeah. I, I, just, like, I just turned 30 and it was magical. Happy birthday again. And I just want to mirror back some of the things I'm um, and reflect some of the things you're sharing because I think they're really important. Um, 
starting from this approach of how your awareness around your your own self-noticing and self-awareness. Like you're you're noticing a lot about yourself and your energy and reacting to that appropriately. And also um, it's there's a, there's a lot of talk of, of what balance looks like for you in this and awareness, but also the cycles. Like there's you're like you're someone who's naturally experiencing cycles much more strongly of energy than other people in the world. That that's mm-hmm. just you're in that that's the reality for you. And one thing I'm thinking about with four gardens approach is how everyone has unique gardens. That actually comparing our gardens to each other can, is not that helpful. It's good to listen to each other and understand and empathy, which I'm feeling, but also realizing, oh, Sasha's experience is different than mine and how our energy flows. And then hearing, but there is some real gold and value in hearing how you're adapting to that, the practices you're using, the work and environment and food you choose to tend your gardens and your energy, because that to me is, then I can notice, okay, I'm different than Sasha in my gardens, but yet her intention to ground when she has a lot of energy, she's noticing that. Other kind of life design choices you're making are allowing you to live in more harmony with the other people around you, your own energy and your environment. So I think your story is, I'm really grateful you're sharing it because it's very instructive to hear. And I also find, I think there's some extra wisdom in listening to people, um, to bipolar people or to people that are dealing with extreme conditions because we all are dealing with some variation of that. No one's exactly level. Everyone's up I and think, down. I, I have an opinion that every single person on the planet has capacity to experience mania or depression I'm gonna, in some I'm form agree. or fashion, yeah, yes. right? You know, um, so everyone, everyone gets it. I just happen to have a very extreme case of that. <laughs> and I think that extreme experience you're having, how you're relating to it does like your wisdom that you gain from that um, because you're kind of forced even more than others to confront that reality that that does apply to others. And like, that is like, I am fascinated by how you are integrating that experience and re- and responding to it so mindfully. Well, the tools are the same across the board for everyone, right? You can have like, even if your experience is totally different, you can use the same tool in your tool. You can have the same tools in your toolbox, you know? And that's, that's one of the reasons I like the low hanging fruit people so much, right? Um, is right. So for those of you who don't know, there's a group of people in Jake and my usual community. Were you part of the original? I am part of the original low hanging fruit collective. Yes. I have not been active lately. Yeah. So, so this group, wonderful group of people that Jake is a part of, um, at a festival we went to produce this space that was called low hanging fruit. And it was all about the tools that we can have in our toolbox simple, easy, everyday tools in our toolbox, the low hanging fruit that's so easy to do, the self-care tools that helps us live healthier lives. Um, And they've continued to do this with, you know, sound healing and meditation and breathwork practices and music and having open mics and places for people to share themselves. Um, So, you know, there's so much low hanging fruit out there and it's really, really important for us all to share the tools that we have in our toolbox because, you know, maybe someone else doesn't have that tool yet and it could be the tool that makes the whole difference for them. Yeah. And and, and like a lot of the low hanging fruit methodology, it's not a methodology. It's a a feeling, inspiration. (laughs) It's a philosophy. It's a wave of, of love, but it is that we have free medicine for each other and for ourselves, as you were saying that our breath is medicine, that being in community, just the act of being in a group in person with each other in a safe space is, is, is healing. And I think that there's so much more that we have than we, that we give ourselves credit for that. We, we look, we look to external sources. We pay money for things that could, should be free or could be easily free. We, so just how much is out there that it's, it's kind of remembering that low hanging abundance. So thank you so much for for bringing it up because mm-hmm. I haven't been thinking about mm-hmm. it enough lately. Mm-hmm. Glad you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Yeah, there's one on Thursday. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, and so low hanging fruit. Check it out if you're in the DC area. I'm I'm not sure mm-hmm. how they're marketing right now because I'm I'm not in the area now. But uh, I'll see if we can get connect people that are interested. Could reach out to me about doing a low hanging mm-hmm. fruit event. Pretty open. And yeah, it's been it's been been really wonderful talking to you and thinking about uh, one piece I want to hit too is going back just to kind of cap off this discussion of self-care of how this experience of the way you're farming, the way you are, 
the way I've been farming to permaculture, how that is pushing back against a, um, a type of farming that, you know, you describe it's monoculture farming, it's extractive industrial farming that I feel like I've been weaving into weaving into like what I'm reacting to with four gardens around self-care. So for you to, um, how has that been like, how is, how have you chosen differently? I guess lately, like chosen of self-care away from the extractive model. If you were to apply, here's my question again. If you were to apply that model, like where do you take that right now in your own, in your own self-care journey? Your own in healing? my own self-care journey. Well, I will say that like I, first and foremost, I'm so grateful that I have a job that allows me to be outside all day. Yes. You know, the vast majority of people have to sit. First of all, humans are not designed to sit. We no. are designed to run and lift and carry things. Um, and so I, I have the pleasure of being able to be physically active in my job and also to be outside, breathe fresh air, get sun, interact with plants and animals. Um, so that's, that's huge for me. I also, a thing I want to talk to you about is I'm barefoot like oh, yeah. half the time at work. This is a great you know, example. I, I, you know, so, so my thing on barefoot, right? So most of us wear rubber soles. Rubber is an insulator. What that means is that it prevents your energy, the energy of your body from interacting with the energy of the earth, right? The earth has a magnetic charge, has an energetic charge. And so do we, so do our bodies. And when we are touching the earth, our energy and the earth's energy are mingling and, and any overabundance that we have in our bodies will, because there's a, a differential in charge will flow into the earth. The earth can take so much. Um, and so we talk about grounding. That is, that is the best way to do it is to take your shoes off and go stand on some earth. Um, and, and I have the pleasure of being able to, to work barefoot a lot of the time, you know, we have, we have dirt paths and we have mulch. The gravel is a little hard. That's, that's kind of when I tend to put my shoes on, but you know, I, I can run around for days, you know, without shoes and it's, it helps keep me sane. I'm <laughs> all about this. I think you really hit on a great example of what my rambling like question I just asked you is going for of thinking about ways. This is another low hanging fruit, another way of taking our shoes off and using when we wearing minimalist shoes is something I'm really into as well of feeling, mm -hmm. giving our foot feet a chance to do what they're, they evolved to do of connecting to the ground of responding, opening fascia. I use like, I use one of, so from low hanging fruit, Umer's, massage balls he sells every day awesome. you know, to roll my feet out for a couple of minutes and just Aquanimous is the brand name. Yes. Okay. I will link Aquanimous here. Sure. <laughs> that's a link I have. And so check out Aquanimous's products. And that's, that's, um, uh, I'm all about the, the, the foot care stuff the last few years. So that's, that's perfect. Totally. Totally. <sighs> well, this has been, it's been really rad talking to you. Is there anything else you want to, um, share about or i'll share your links below um for people who are interested in the flower farm and other work sasha's yeah. doing i mean yeah i'll just throw it out there that like if anyone is looking for flowers for an event or for their mom or whoever i mean please please support your local flower farmers right like they are producing if you're in baltimore local color flowers is a florist shop that sources only local flowers and so that means in the winter they're doing like dried arrangements and stuff um but like there are local sources for these things and if you're trying to make someone's day a gift of local flowers is we'll do it <laughs> it's really i'm super grateful now like we we are so abundant that i have the privilege of whenever i'm going over to a friend's house i get to bring a bouquet and you know that's the abundance that i have to share um, and, and I, you know, if you're in Northern Virginia, we go to farmer's markets in Ashburn on Saturday and Sunday, fortunate. And fortunately it's about the end of our season. It's, you know, hasn't frosted yet, but we're about to be done going to markets. Um, but for next year, we're, we're going to be having workshops on the farm this winter. We're doing a succulent wreath workshop, I think in November for Thanksgiving, um, we're all going to have farm tours if you want to learn about bouquet making. Oh, the last thing I did want to say is that like, I'm not an artist or I like don't consider myself an artist because I like went to engineering school and was discouraged from doing art, sitting and doing art. But 
every single Friday, I get to spend my entire work day making bouquets and making art with flowers. And it is the best kind of art I could ever imagine doing. And I'm so grateful that I get to scratch the creative itch in my work. I love imagining you surrounded by all those flowers and bouquets. That sounds so lovely. It's amazing. We fill up the whole aisle of the barn with tables covered in flowers. Amazing. (laughs) What a a, a great, I said that was Fridays for you is flower bouquet day. Fridays are bouquet day. The bouquet babes and the bouquet day. Actually, that's a pretty cool thing that is true about the farm. It is women, women powered. Beautiful. Support that. Yes. Bouquet day. Support your local female farmers. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, that's so good. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Sasha. This was, uh, it was a pleasure to get to know you better, to have so much wisdom to share with the community and others. And I was just really happy with how this conversation went. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Jake. I, when I heard you had a podcast, I was like, oh, I got to get on that. That's going to be so fun. <laughs> I, was, I was stoked to have you on. Grateful. Uh-huh. Cool. That was my podcast with Sasha Bugler. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out our Facebook group. Make sure to like and subscribe to this episode and check out Sasha's work in the links below. I'd love to hear what you think about no-till farming. If you have any reactions or questions to this episode, I'd be happy to pass them on to Sasha as well or try to respond myself. You can email me at foregardenspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again so much for listening. Have a beautiful day and keep on growing.